Well, if you have a Bible with you on your phone or in your hand, I invite you to take it and turn to the book of First, Thess- First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians, and we're going to be in chapter two. Well, I trust you're enjoying uh, this fall weather as things cool down and colors start to change all around us. Christmas is 10 weeks away, and uh, here we go, 10 weeks, and, uh, and uh, this year you can, you can tell the kids, you don't have to worry about, you know, the, I'm going to give myself trouble, about Santa Claus here because you can just tell them all the gifts are stuck on the shoreline and not uh, getting in, so... Uh, Ten weeks away, and this is the time of year that in our in our family, uh, in our mailbox, we start getting uh, we start getting toy catalogs. Uh, we just got one from Amazon recently, and the second my kids see those those uh, the you know the Amazon catalog, they just start tearing through it, and they're just they just start circling everything they want, and uh, they, they they fight over it. And we, they should send us four. They should know we have four kids. I'm sure Amazon knows we have four kids, and so they should just send us four. That way they can each have one. They're circling everything, and as a kid, I remember. As a kid, my parents would come to me and say, hey, your aunts and uncles, you know, they want to know, your grandparents, they want to know what to get you for Christmas. So make a list of everything you want. And uh, this whole thing about writing down what you want and circling what you want, it reminds me of what a pastor friend of mine, Kurt DeGraff, once said to open a sermon where he says, I want is the theme song of the human heart. Disney fills their movies with I want songs. As a matter of fact, there's a hardly a recording artist in America or anywhere or ever that hasn't written a song about what they want. And we could make a case that every song is a song about once, but certainly artists go out of their way to write songs and produce songs about wanting From lyrics such as, let me tell you what I want, what I really, really want, to I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now, to how bad do you want it? Are you eating, drinking, sleeping with that one thing on your mind? Because if you want it, you've got to lay it all down on the line. I want, I want, I want, I want when we come to this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is going to talk about his own ministry, and uh, he's going to talk about the I want. So let's, let's look at these first eight verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and unpack it this morning. Paul says, For you, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Whatever your I want is, that's what motivates you. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting things. God created us to be wanting creatures. He created us as creatures that have desires, that have wants. But the problem comes mainly with what it is that we ultimately want. Like the lyric of that one song, what are we, what are we willing to lay everything else down on the line for? To make sure we get what desire and motivation rules over all of the others. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Many times, maybe we don't want to get out of bed, and just because we dread that it may be a day where we just know we're not going to get what we want, or we know things that what we want at work isn't going on, or what we want out of marriage isn't happening, what we want out of our kids isn't happening, what we want out of school isn't happening, what we want out of life and, 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 and plans being different. We thought we'd, have, we'd be married and have tons of kids and have lots of money, and it's just everything. And so we just want to stay in bed and just skip out. But if what motivates us is the glory of God, then we can get out of bed and face the day regardless of its struggles and pains. And we're going to see that here with the Apostle Paul. Because in this passage, Paul is, he's, really what he's doing, he's defending his ministry. He came to Thessalonica. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He was there for several months. He got chased out of town. And after he left, what happened is the non-Christians, the Greeks and the Jews, they started just slamming the character of Paul. And the idea was that if these, if these unbelievers could discredit Paul, then these Thessalonian believers, their faith would be discredited. After all, if Paul came and his only motive was to get money, if his only motive was to get a following, then there's no sense in following this guy. And the gospel could be totally abandoned and destroyed there. And so Paul, for the sake of the gospel, is writing to the Thessalonians to defend his ministry. Now, Paul is not defending his ministry because he's concerned about his own person and because he was taking it personally. He knew for that for the sake of the gospel, he needed to talk about the motives behind his ministry. Now, we know here from what we read, especially in verse 1, where he says, uh, for you yourselves know. And then uh, later in verse 2, he says, as you know. It, it turns out the Thessalonians weren't really buying it from these unbelievers. That is... It was clear to them, and the Thessalonians didn't need any convincing. They knew who Paul was, and they weren't buying the claims of Paul's enemies. But Paul still found it necessary to include this section in his letter. And so when we talk about motives, again, we are talking about our, our innermost being. Motives, about, motives are about why we do what we do and what it is that we truly want. Paul's motive was to please God. We'll get to there eventually, but verse 4, he says, we didn't do this to please you, to please anybody. It even tells the Thessalonians, it wasn't even to please you, but to please God. And that's why he did what he did. That's what he truly wanted. That's what got Paul out of bed in the morning. It was, it was looking at a day saying, today's my motive today, my ambition today, my goal today. What I want today more than anything is for the glory of God to be seen in my life. 
And because pleasing God is what motivated Paul, the result was that severe conflict didn't disrupt his ministry, poor character didn't disqualify him from ministry, and instead he had genuine affection towards others that was on display throughout his ministry. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the example of Paul, uh, because I think he's an example for all of us, whether you're a pastor or not, and of course none of us are, are apostles, uh, you know, in the same life uh, stage as, as Paul was. So what I want to do is look at Paul's life, and I want to ask three motive-measuring questions about ourselves to try to figure out what our motives are. And here's the first one. Number one, figure out your motive. Ask yourself this question, how do I respond to adversity? In verses 1 and 2, Paul says, he says he's in specifically in verse 2, he says, we had, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. You know, we had all the boldness to declare the gospel in the midst of much, much affliction. So severe conflict didn't disrupt Paul's ministry. Now, it led to some changes in location. Remember, the, 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 the adversity he faced in Thessalonica actually caused him to, to run. He had to, he, had to, he had to sneak out by night. But he continued preaching the gospel. And so here we have Paul defending his ministry. Remember, Silas was with him as well. But he's defending his ministry by pointing to how he responded to adversity for the sake of the gospel. And he says there in, in verse 1 that our coming to you was, wasn't in vain. And the idea here, it's not that the results were empty. He was saying, we didn't come to you in a vain way. We didn't come to you with selfish ambition. We didn't come to you just looking to, to get ahead in life. We didn't come to you just looking for money or for approval or for applause or to gain a following. He didn't have selfish motives. They weren't eager for selfish gain. It's like Paul and Silas ran a demographic report and they said, okay, the, the best opportunity, the best way to get money would be to head to Thessalonica. That's, that's where the money's at. That's not what they did. They chose Thessalonica because they knew if the gospel caught fire there, it would catch fire in the communities around them. And guess that's what we looked at last week, where the Thessalonians became an example and, and the gospel rang out from them. And the gospel was their motivation. And they proved the gospel was their motivation because it wasn't like they were coming from Philippi, which was the most recent town they were in. It's not like they were coming from Philippi with their, their pockets overflowing with money. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, which we won't have time to do, but in Acts chapter 16, it was the exact opposite. They were beaten, they were shamefully treated, they were put in prison, and they were put in stocks. And what's worse than that, if you remember the story of, uh, of uh, Paul and Philippi, is that Paul was a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens weren't supposed to be treated like they were treated. And so there was no trial. They just simply beat Paul up very badly, and then they threw him in prison. They put him in stocks without any sort of trial. So their rights as citizens were violated and trampled. They were subjects of public humiliation and shame. They were beaten and imprisoned. And Paul and Silas, would have, they would have come to Thessalonica still bruised and bleeding. Still limping. Still with cracked ribs. And lacerations on their face. And lacerations on their back. They'd still be in pain to put any clothes on because of how severely they were treated. 
And if you didn't know these guys, and you saw these guys walking to town, which obviously nobody knew them when they first walked into town, but if you didn't know these guys, you'd have to scratch your head and say, man, what gets these guys out of bed in the morning? What gets Paul and Silas, and eventually Timothy who would join them, what gets these guys out of bed in the morning? It wasn't health. It wasn't money. It wasn't popularity. It was boldness in God to preach the gospel. And it was a burden for people. They came with boldness in their God, knowing that what happened in Philippi could very likely happen when they got to Thessalonica. And in a, and a, and in a less severe way, it did. And the word boldness there carries the idea of freedom of speech. So that no matter what happened to them, they sensed and they felt they, they had boldness in God, not boldness in their skill, not boldness in their looks, but boldness in their God to preach the gospel of God. And so you have to ask the question, well, if these, if these enemies of Paul's were saying these are just a bunch of self-seeking missionaries just here to get your money and your attention, well, you could ask that question, well, if they were, what did they, what did they come to do? They came and preached the gospel. Paul's life operated in the sphere of the presence and control of God. That's what I mean, boldness in our God. He operated with the purpose of pleasing God, and so he was able to endure adversity. And so Paul's response to that adversity was that he, he, his motives were pure. He was motivated by pleasing God and preaching the gospel. And it takes boldness in God to face adversity and to continually praise him, which is what he did. And this is, and this is where it comes to all of us. This, this is the aim we should all possess. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says something similar, similar where he says, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That was Paul's aim. And this is the aim we should all have. So what does your response to adversity say about your motives? When trials come into your life, when suffering, maybe it's physical, maybe it's, maybe it's slander or gossip or somebody spreading misinformation about you. Maybe it's somebody coming to you and, and verbally insulting you. What do your responses to adversity say about your motives? What do trials reveal that you truly want? Now, the answer to that question could be found in our knee-jerk reactions, our knee-jerk reaction to what comes into our lives. Knee-jerk reactions reveal just about everything we need to know about ourselves. What reveals what we, how we respond, or if you want to find out what your heart really looks like, don't listen to your mouth. Because your mouth will paint you a really good picture. But look at your knee-jerk reactions towards your spouse. Or towards somebody who cuts you off in traffic. Or towards your boss at work. Or to, towards kids at school. Or towards when you get some negative medical news. Or when your life gets blown up and your schedule gets blown up. Look at your knee-jerk reactions. I find it interesting in verse 2. Notice here, it starts with suffering. Okay, so, but though we had already suffered, and it ends, the verse ends in conflict. Starts with suffering, and then it says at the end of verse 2, uh, to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. There are the bookends, suffering and conflict. And right in the middle is boldness 
in God to preach the gospel. Which means that we can be surrounded by adversity. We can be surrounded by conflict. Maybe, maybe conflict with our own selves in our hearts. Maybe it's conflict with other people. We can have suffering and adversity. We can have conflict all around us. But still, as a Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit, smack dab in the middle of that, we can live a life pleasing to God. And we can make it our aim and our motive. When we look at the life of Jesus, we can, pick, we can just pick out anywhere in his life, can't we? And say, this is, this is who Jesus was for us. Surrounded by suffering and conflict on every side. Entrusting himself to his father. And adversity, adversity is Jesus' way of saying, here's what, your, here's what your motives really are. I would love to rescue you. I would love to help you. I would love to get your motives towards pleasing God. And that's what Christ in us through the Holy Spirit enables us to walk by faith in Christ no matter the circumstance we face. And if our motive in life is to please God, then no circumstance can keep us from entrusting ourselves to his presence and his control. But there's a second question I want to look at this morning. It's in verses 3 through 6. Number one is, how do I respond to adversity? Number two, when God looks at my heart, what does he really see? Now, what Paul is going to do now, he's kind of got the, the, the groundwork done. He's going, to, he's going to dive in a little bit deeper here. And so he says, he says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, any attempt to deceive. But just as we, as we have been approved, that's, uh, that's the exact same Greek word as the word test later in this verse. So he's almost like he's saying it twice. Just as we have been approved, attested and approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We didn't come with words of flattery. God is our witness. We didn't seek glory from people, verse 6, or from others. Although we could have made demands as apostles. So here, here Paul says, when God looks at my heart, when God really looks, he, here's what he really sees. And he doesn't see impure motives. For Paul, his ministry was about giving and sharing, not about taking. And this is what motivates so much of our world right now. Everywhere you turn, the motive is what can we get? What can you give me? What can you do for me? How can you make me feel like I'm worth something? How can you give me the things I need in life? And it's the I want, I want, I want, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. Now the word for appeal in verse 3 is, in the original language, it is actually, a, a, the, it derives from the word that is used in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 to refer to the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is referred to as a comforter or an encourager. That's the same word here. This is the, that's the idea here. It was a word used in ancient times of, of, of uh, what was spoken to soldiers before they went into war to encourage them and embolden them. So what Paul is saying, even in this word he chose, was that our appeal, when we came and spoke to you, it was for your benefit. When he preached the gospel, it was for them, to give them benefit. It wasn't to take, which he's going to elaborate on here in a moment. 
Paul's message truly benefited the hearers. It wasn't just masked as a benefit to them when in reality he was trying to manipulate them. He wasn't there to trick them into being part of his fan club and give him money. His aim was to preach the gospel. And the gospel was true. It was not error. That's what he says in verse 3. It's not error. He didn't come with impure motives. Most, most of the time in the New Testament when that word impure is used, it's, it's, it's used to speak of even sexual sin. But I think it's even used more generally here. Paul just didn't come as just some sicko. He was just looking to get as much people on his side as possible. The gospel is true. He preached with pure motives. He wasn't trying to trick anyone. He wasn't looking to capture the unsuspecting and gullible with cheap oratorical tricks. And in verse 4, he says, we've been tested and approved by God, and they were deemed worthy of preaching the gospel. His aim, verse 4, was to please God. So we speak the gospel, not to please man, but to please God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, something similar. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul understood that the moment your life is wrapped up in pleasing people, and you're just trying to get people to affirm you, to like you, to love you, to give you stuff, and it's your, your whole motive in life is just what you can get for yourself, Paul says, that's not, I can't be a servant of Christ. And so Paul's also saying he didn't tailor his message to make it more palatable. He preached the gospel. He says, we have been approved by God and trusted with the gospel. So we speak it. Not to please man. We didn't speak the gospel in a way that hopefully would draw some approval. They wanted to be approved by God. Make no mistake, the people pleaser, the people pleaser and the people pleaser pastor poses no threat to spiritual darkness. They pose a threat to people. And we can just stop right here and just look and just, let's just draw a straight line from this to pastors and to your pastor and to me standing behind the pulpit. Any pastor, any preacher who wants to change the message to please people poses no threat to spiritual darkness. They pose a threat to people. Any attempt on my behalf to try to change the word of God to make it please your heart or to please my own heart in a way that sacrifices the truth for what I think you would rather hear because sometimes God's word isn't always palatable to our sinful hearts. I would, know, I would pose no threat to spiritual darkness. I would actually pose a greater threat to you. And so when Paul comes here, he says, we didn't speak with words of flattery. They didn't come with the pretext. The word pretext is, literally means mask. He didn't come with a mask for greed. He wasn't trying, he wasn't trying to hide something where his, his real self wasn't seen. This is the mark of a people pleaser. Someone who, whose motive is simply to please people, not God. The mark of a people pleaser shows himself in the way he communicates, and it's normally flattery. Now, flattery carries the idea of speaking kind words to win someone fa someone's favor for the purpose of personal advantage. 
Definition of greed, as one commentator put it, greed is the sin of a man who thinks his desires and his appetites and his lusts are more important, the most important thing in the world. He sees others as things to be exploited. He has no God except himself and his desires. That's flattery, that's greed, that's the people pleaser. And they go hand in hand. And they both come with a person who's motivated by earning the approval of people instead of aiming to please God. Paul wasn't looking for the praise of people. We saw that in verse 6. He was concerned with pleasing God. And when God peered into his heart, and it reminds me uh, just now of, of, of Hebrews, where it talks about the word of God being a, du- a dual-edged sword. It pierces in there, it slices us down, it opens us up to see our very souls. And so when Paul was saying, when God opens up my soul, when he opens up my heart, There's no longing in there for the praise of men. He doesn't see a heart eager for money or power or applause or approval or popularity. What does God see when he looks at your heart? He takes that surgery knife, which is the word of God, and he cuts open your heart and he looks at your soul. What's in there? What what are the motives in there? We need to be honest with ourselves and with God. Here's another verse from the Old Testament. One of my favorites when it comes to the Lord searching the heart. It's from 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. And it says, David speaking, he says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. But notice that. The Lord, he searches all hearts, and he understands every plan and thought. So here's the idea here. What David is telling Solomon, if you make a plan, don't try to fool God. He understands every plan. He understands where you're trying to get. Every word you speak, every word I speak, everything I do, God says, listen, I know, I know the end game you have in mind here. I know what motivates you. I know what the aim is. That's why some translations say in this verse that God knows our desires or he knows our imaginations. He knows what we imagine when it comes to other people. He knows the kind of relationships we imagine. He knows the, the, kind, of, the kind of applause or affirmation or popular, popularity we, just, we crave. He knows what you daydream about. He knows the life you really want. He knows what you're really after. He knows what you're really trying to get out of people. God knows what's behind the mask. And people-pleasing is all about masking, hiding, camouflaging. Just this morning, I was, uh, I was at the hy gas station and uh, was getting uh, my normal uh, Starbucks coffee thing there. And then I was going to grab a pack of gum. And I guess I had been standing there for a while because eventually the, the guy at the cash register says, a lot of, lot of options there, aren't there? And I, I said, I didn't, I was kind of like, yeah, there is. I don't know which one to pick one. I mean, I don't know which one I normally get. There's, there's spearmint and there's peppermint and there's winter mint and there's sweet mint and there's original mint and there's this and that. And I, I just, I don't know which one to get. A lot of flavors to choose from. Well, I thought that might be a good segue into the flavors of flattery. We're going to look at the screen now. And I'm not, this isn't to 
bog anybody down, but this, this, is, this is from Lou Priolo in a book called Pleasing People. And he lists, actually from this passage, he's actually addressing this passage when he talks about the people pleaser. And he's talking about flattery and masking. Here's some things he says. The people pleaser rarely confronts sin in the life of another believer. The people pleaser rarely challenges or even questions the opinions of others. The people pleaser or the flatterer prematurely terminates conflicts, usually by yielding, withdrawing, or changing the subject. The people pleaser rarely reveals to others the truth about who he is on inside, especially his struggles with sin. Is that you? Do you struggle revealing to others the truth about who you really are? It's a people pleaser. It's someone who will be given to flattery. The people pleaser, the flatterer, steers conversations from those that might cause others to realize what he is really like inside. More than that, the people pleaser fishes for compliments. He shades the truth, or lies, in order to not offend others. He finds clever ways to subtly introduce his accomplishments into the conversation. He frequently puts himself down in the hope that others will disagree with his purposefully exaggerated negative self-assessment. He finds it difficult to say no to those who make requests of him, even when he knows that saying yes will not be the best choice. There's the flavors of flattery and people-pleasing. And listen, there aren't any types on this list. The big, tough guy extrovert can be just as motivated by the insecurities of people-pleasing as the shy introvert. If you're reading through that list, and I know we went through it quickly, but if you're like, man, that, there's just so many of those, there's so many of those flavors in my own heart. Well, what overcomes this? What overcomes this? A clear conscience that is approved by God, boldness in Christ. Let me go over people pleasing. You can start developing boldness in your heart, in Christ, in God. Your understanding that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means people pleasers are often motivated by the fear of being condemned by others. Um, and I didn't even have to read a book to find that out. I just had to look at my own heart uh, for that one. That's, what, that's the motivation. Lou Priolo says, he says, make it, make it your aim for others to judge you based on your godly character. I love that. Make it your aim for others to judge you based on your godly character and not how well you look, or anything like that. Right, there's one final question we need to look at as we measure our motives. Number one, how do I respond to adversity? Number two, when God looks at my heart, what does he really see? And number three, do I love others unconditionally? You might say, what does that have to do with our motives? It has everything to do with our motives. Verse seven and eight. Notice what Paul says here as a contrast. He says, Instead of this wacko, no good preacher who uses flattery and deceit and is greedy, he says, instead, we were gentle among you. Anybody who's just clawing after approval won't be gentle. They might at first. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We were so affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you, not just the gospel, but our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. He talks about the great affection he had for the Thessalonians. 
something that those with impure motives, whether it's people-pleasing or some other motive, those with impure motives don't have this sort of affection towards other people. So another way to measure our motives is to look at, other, or to look at our love for others. When it comes to the, the Apostle Paul, he says he could have made rights as an apostle. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Even apart from rights and stuff like that, there is, there's a sort of arrogant entitlement that tempts many leaders and many pastors. And Paul refused to adopt an authoritarian attitude that placed him above or apart from other people. And this isn't, yes, it's a strong temptation for leaders and pastors. Of course, this is a temptation for everybody, though. Because we all have sinful hearts that, that, that we adopt... Uh, uh, an authoritarian, or if we don't have authority, we just adopt some sort of attitude that places us above or apart from other people. Now, the Apostle Paul could have asked for fin financial help. I want to touch on that, because he says, we, although we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, you might look at that and say, okay, doesn't that just totally negate everything you just said? Is he sitting there dangling this over their head? Like, hey, I could have I demanded things from you. Not at all. Now, Paul could have asked for financial help. But he was, never find, uh, he was never comfortable receiving money from those he led to the Lord. This is his argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 12 through 18. Now, this is not all 12 through 18, but it kind of gives us the idea of that passage. Where, where Paul talks about this very thing, being paid for gospel work. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, don't we even more? He's even telling the Corinthians, we could have we used this right to say, hey, we, we need you to support us financially. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. What then is my reward, he says at the end of this passage, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now it's interesting that even in the midst of that, Paul says he does this almost at the expense of disobeying a command of the Lord. For the Lord commands that those who preach the gospel make their living in the gospel. But instead, Paul was like a nursing mother caring for her children and next week, when we get into uh, next week's passage, we're going to talk about how Paul compares himself to a father. Right now, he's saying, I'm a, I was a we're a nurturing mother to you. He says that his, his affection ran so deep that he was willing to expend his own soul for them. He cared for them as a mother cares for his children. And some of your translations may have the phrase wet nurse, and that's actually more of the idea there. A wet nurse, someone who is hired to give total care to a baby and raise the baby. And Paul wasn't doing it for the money, but he did see himself as a man who was to give himself wholly to these people for their good in the gospel. And so he gave to the Thessalonians everything he was. So this is the principle behind our motives when it comes to this one. Motives don't just fuel what we do for ourselves, they fuel what we do for others. And what we want from others, and what we expect of others, and how we treat others. And we're motivated by pleasing God and preaching the gospel and enables us to connect with people on the deepest levels of our affections and to freely give ourselves to them. Now, not everybody is as, you know, extroverted and type A and just wants, you know, just wants to connect with people all over the place. I get there's different personalities. But if you have, if you have on your deepest being in the Christian walk, 
if you just simply have no desire to connect with people on some of the deepest levels of our affection, and I'm not saying that has to be everybody, if you're not in the deepest core of your being through the motivation of the gospel and motivation, who God, motivation of who God is, you just don't want to freely give yourselves to others in service, there might be an issue with your motives. And so even though while earlier he says, listen, we didn't, we didn't seek glory from you, verse 6, we weren't seeking praise of anybody. And so yes, while that pastors and preachers are not to tailor the message of the Bible to try to be relevant or cool or consistent with cultural views, neither should they be hostile, domineering, arrogant, or self-exalting. Pastors of all people should speak the truth with utter boldness in God. But they, as pastors and preachers and leaders, spiritual leaders, should still have that thing. Like Paul says, we are gentle among you, like nursing mothers, so affectionately desirous of you. Pastors aren't to be on mission to leave a pile of bodies in their wake. And all of us, whether you're a pastor, preacher, leader or not, we can ask ourselves what we truly want from others. We can ask ourselves what we're truly willing to give others. We can look at our hearts and say, in my heart, am I motivated by an affection for people, for other Christians, that I have not, not only to share the gospel, give the gospel, to give my own self. That flows from a heart that wants to please God. Paul wanted to please God. He wanted the gospel to be proclaimed to those who haven't heard. He wanted believers to mature in Christ's likeness. That's what he wanted. What are your motives? What motivates you this morning? If you really want to find out, ask yourself, how do you respond to adversity? Ask yourself, what God, and be honest before God and with yourself, what does God really see in your heart? And do you love others unconditionally? So at the, at the end of the day, what is it that you really want? And if you're here this morning and all this just sounds kind of crazy and you don't really know what we're talking about, like how do, how do I make my aim to please God? I have no desire to please God in my heart. Well, it's not going to be there if you don't know who Jesus is and what he did for you. If you've never placed your trust given your life to the Lord Jesus who died for your sins and rose again, then actually the Bible even says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, you cannot please God. So if you're not a believer and you're not a Christian, place your faith in Jesus. That's where the road to pleasing God begins. That's how it all starts. And if you are a Christian, at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what is it that you really want? Let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning as a pastor, yes, as one of your children, absolutely, but Lord, knowing in my own heart that I struggle with my motives, I'm sinful in my motives, even as I lead this church, even as I go about my day, there will be so many different aims in my life. And so I pray, Lord, for your grace and for your help, not only for me, but for all those in here, that we would truly make it our aim, whether we are here or whether we are away, that we would make it our aim to please you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.